today um, we're going to finish up John Calvin. And then that would make next week the logical week for uh, the, the Episcopal break-off under Henry VIII, the Church of England, the Anglican break-off. And if I could sort of do that in a week, then the next logical step that I had planned at least was to deal with 1611 was the year of the King James Version of the Bible. And it's the, the first English version that really uh, nobody got killed over making. And um, in England, the, the, under Calvin, the Swiss had been producing English Bibles, but they were illegal to import into England, the Geneva Bibles. But um, uh, I was thinking about taking a week or two and dealing with how we got our scriptures. And we'd probably go back a little bit and pick up the... We had the lecture on the canon back almost a year plus ago, year and a half ago maybe, no, a year, 13 months ago. Pick up from there in the 200 era and, and kind of bring Scripture up to the 1611s and how we know what we know. Look at the King James Version itself, where it was strong and where it was weak, and then go ahead and take advantage of that time to go through the additional uh, years since and, and bring it up to date and talk about what Bibles we have and why we have so many translations and which ones are which and which are good and which are, are, are of a different uh, slant and what's the difference between them and why do we need so many different translations. Is, but the question is, I don't do that if, uh, for like Big Attendance Sunday if that's mega boring. Okay? So how many of you all would find that? Well, I guess you won't raise your hand if I say is that mega boring. Um, <laughs> how many of you would be encouraged to come on such a class? Is that an interesting subject? Okay, good. Then I expect that's what we'll be doing. And those of you who just raised your hand have no excuse to miss that day, regardless of how Lewis does with the announcements. Now, we are then kicking back into John Calvin. Um, you've got a handout that's John Calvin Part 2, or as Steve Taylor said, it's John Calvin Redo, because uh, I wasn't too pleased with last week's handout. Um, so uh, uh, we have redone the handout, and I've tried to put Calvin's Institutes all together. I've got some friends here today. Leslie Stewart's a dear friend of mine that, that I worked with, and she worked with me for years before she moved to Austin, and her in-laws are here, and I welcome them, but they haven't been in this class before, um, so they're brand new. I see Joe Barnett, my childhood preacher, Doug Barnett, his son, and a childhood friend of mine. They've been in here a couple of times, but uh, this is not where they regularly attend. Doug lives in Lubbock, and uh, 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 so I assume there are other visitors as well, and here's what you've done. You've just plopped into the 1530s in a history class that started in about 30 A.D. So you're about 1,500 years in the middle. And if this was a good TV show, I'd have previously on church history, and I could in two minutes bring you up to date in the 1500s. But it's not, and I can't, so I won't. So with that, fasten your seatbelt and welcome to the 1500s. Um, in the 1500s, there was a growing literacy rate. You have paper production has taken off. And you can actually buy paper at a reasonable rate. The reason paper production took off is because in 1450, Gutenberg invented a printing press. So you could now readily access reading material. And when reading material is not so hard to come by, people will bother to learn how to read. If you've got nothing to read, there's really not much point in learning how to do it. 
But when there is material to read, all of a sudden, people want to learn how to do it. They want to access that material. It's not surprising. What happens, though, is the readers become ordinary people. Especially the middle class, which is arising as as a kind of a capitalistic economy is starting to grow in Europe. And so you've now got what in church lingo is called the laity. Those are the everyday people. Those are the people that are not clergy. They're not monastics. They don't go to monasteries. They're not nuns. They're not monks. They have no real training in the church beyond the attenders. We, with the exceptions of Lewis and Joe and a few others, we are laity here. Because we are attenders. Well, the laity starts reading. And when the laity starts reading, one of the best books they start reading is the Bible, which is being printed. So the laity starts reading the Bible and they start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what we've been taught. The church itself had fallen into, I don't know if disrepair is the right word, but... But, but maybe it is. The church had gotten to a point where a lot of the people who were running the church didn't really read that much themselves. They didn't really know what was going on. And they were teaching and administering a religious system that had just been handed down. Have you ever seen the kids play the game that's played to teach a point where they put the kids all in a circle and the teacher hands that first kid a secret, which the first kid whispers to the second, who whispers, who whispers, who whispers, the goal being by the time it gets back around and you see how different it is than what was said. Becky and I had a chance to go with Gracie yesterday to to look at a college uh, uh, that Gracie's considering going to. And we're sitting there at lunch. And Gracie says to us, I don't remember what she said. Do you remember what she said? Um, Gracie says something that neither one of us could understand. And we both thought she had said something about running together or something. And, and Becky says, what did you say? And she says, well, y'all want to run together? What? You know, and we are definitely getting a little older and probably listened to too much loud music growing up. And we can't understand a word she's saying. And she's like, okay, do you speak English? I mean, what's the problem here? It just, the words didn't seem right. In communication theory, one of the hardest things that, they, that, that communication theorists teach is to communicate, you've got to take the concept in my brain right now, figure out how to put it into words, say those words with enough clarity to where you're going to hear the words for what they are, Say them with enough engagement to where you bother to let them translate from what they are into your brain. And hopefully, the image or thought that's in my brain goes into your brain. That's communication theory. Well, what had happened to the church over 1,500 years of people not directly themselves feeding off Scripture and off God is the church had gotten to a point where it's, it's, it's one person who's told another person who's told another person who's told another person. And then in the 1500s, you get people who get to see the original note. And they say, something's been lost in the translation. 
And so laity comes into conflict with the church. Now, this was especially happening in what's called the Holy Roman Empire. And at this point, the Holy Roman Empire is that only in name. Rome is just barely in the Holy Roman Empire. And it's not really the empire of of the, the people of Rome. It's actually the German Empire at this point because it's the German Gauls who have taken over the Roman Empire. But this red area in the, the PowerPoint is the Holy Roman Empire. And within that, the church is beginning to splinter. Luther in the 1520s has taken northern Germany into what's now called Lutheranism. And in the Swiss states, John Calvin has followed, uh, uh, he's moved from France over to, to Geneva, Switzerland. And in the 1500s, Geneva is the hot spot. I was laughing with Leslie this morning before church. Um, uh, uh, it's so interesting to see how things move from generation to generation. I will tell you, to worship at a church like this, for me growing up, is somewhat of a renegade activity. Okay? It's just not what I grew up with. But it's interesting for our children, the renegade activity is to leave a church like this and go to something that's much more structured and higher church, which is what we've renegated away from. And, and it's just so interesting to me the way things seem to go in a circle. Geneva was the hot spot. If you were the cutting edge, if you were the, the, the people who were really, you know, walking the border... That's where you went. That was the, the happening place. That was the place where the new stuff was going around. If it had been the 1960s, they'd have had long hair and snapped their fingers a lot and talked about what was groovy and cool. It was that type of a cutting-edge environment. And John Calvin and his people were, were, were people who were leading the church in a new direction. Don't get me wrong, John Calvin, if you went to John Calvin and say, why did you split the church? His response would be, I did not. The failure of the Roman Catholic Church to come with me was the split. I maintained a biblical church. The Roman Catholic Church split off. See the difference in idea? And that was his perception of things. So Calvin has now got his new following, if you will. Calvin is, is a leader, and what Calvin has done is he, he walks into a vacuum of teaching. There's really no seminary to teach the, the preachers. There's no Bible college where you're going to get educated. The only universities at this point are Roman Catholic universities. So Luther doesn't, I mean, uh, uh, Calvin or Luther doesn't have a, a, a ready system to teach and to train the preachers. So Calvin writes his Biblical Theology 101, and Calvin starts a seminary. And Calvin says, here is the basic textbook. Read these textbooks, and these will give you the background of theology you need so that when you read the Bible, you understand the Bible. Calvin was not one of these, hey, get everybody a Bible and let everybody read the Bible. He says, you start reading the Bible without enough background and you're not going to know how it fits. I had a gentleman call me. Uh, uh, I've told you this story. He called me about a year and a half ago when we were in trial. And he said, I want to read the Bible. I've never read it before. What do I do? And I said, well, first you've got to get one. He said, all right, where? I said, 
go to Walmart. I, I mean, we're up in New Jersey, Atlantic City, New Jersey. I don't know what else they have, but they have a Walmart. I said, go up there, get you one that's a new international version. That's real easy to read. He says, okay, I'm writing this down. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it, I'm going to read it, and I'll call you back. <laughs> I said, uh, I said Time out, time out, time out, time out, come out. I, I, I would wager, we're in Atlantic City, I would wager that uh, you won't. <laughs> uh, let me tell you something. The Bible has a couple thousand years of history in it. And it's got God revealing himself to different cultures and different civilizations at different times over that thousand years plus. I said, do me a favor. Look in the index. You're going to see that Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. I said, I want you to go to the New Testament. And you'll see that there are a bunch of what are called books there. Go to the fourth one. It's called The Gospel According to John. I want you to read that. Start there. He said, okay, what do I do next? I said, read it again and again. And he did. He read it 25 times. And then he thought he'd be real smart, and he read the book of Revelation because it was also written by John. He called me. He said, Mark, I'm afraid to leave my house. I said, why? He said, I just read the book of Revelation, and I'm really scared. I don't understand it, but I think I'm going to hell, and it's not a good place, and there are lots of bad things that are about to happen. I said, what do I do? I said, go back and read John. <laughs> we'll sit and talk. Calvin publishes his Institutes to try to give people an idea of some basics about this. And so book one in the Institutes we talked about last week, it's, it's basically asking, answering a couple of questions. It answers the question, who is God? And, and, and answers the question, who are we? And it answers the question, how do we know this is God? And how do we know this is who we are? Now, as I told you last week, when we looked at book one, Calvin does not do what Aquinas did when we studied Aquinas or, or what Anselm did when we studied Anselm. Aquinas, I mean, uh, uh, Calvin's not about to prove the existence of God to anybody. He says, I don't need to prove the existence of God. He says, everybody knows God exists, whether they acknowledge it or not. Because the evidence of God is in all of us. There's something inside of all of us that says there's got to be meaning and purpose to life. There is something inside of all of us that says there has to be more than, than this. There is a drive within all of us to search for significance. Calvin would say that the man who denies God's existence is a man who's trying to convince himself because he doesn't want it to be true. He says it's not only within us, but the evidence of God is without us too. Look at the universe. The universe itself shows God. It shows His handiwork. But, he says, it's not a reliable revelation in the sense that you can look up there and get all sorts of different ideas. You can look up there and think God may be the stars. You can look up there and think God may be astrology. You could, just the revelation of God in the world, while it confirms for us that there is some designer who designed, 
while it confirms for us that there is some power beyond us, it doesn't really tell us that much in and of itself. And, and so it can lead to superstition. So he says, if we want to understand who God is, we need revelation. Doesn't it make sense, as a Calvinist named Francis Schaeffer would say in the 20th century, doesn't it make sense that the God who created us and made us communicators who can talk and communicate, doesn't it make sense that that God would try to communicate to us? And he is there, but he's not silent. And so this God, how do we know God? Well, God has given us a revelation of who he is. And we talked about this last week, and you can get on the website. And uh, by the way, when you're on the website, free plug here for Stephen Trammell's devotionals he's putting on there from the church each day. They're really good. You ought to log on and look at them. But you can get on the Internet. You can download last week's lesson. Don't read the written lesson. It was horrible. Uh, Listen to the audio. Um, I'm not saying that it was any better, but it's better than the horrible written lesson. Um, Accurate knowledge of God needs revelation. If we want to know who God is, let's see how God chose to reveal himself. Book two. Okay, fine. But what happened after that? I mean, we got this Old Testament thing. What's this Old Testament? Why do we have a Bible? Why is there an Old Testament and then a New Testament? You know, why, does, why do we have Jesus? If it's such a big deal for him to die, why'd God do it? What, what do we need Jesus to be anyway? And what do we want Jesus for? And why, why is Jesus a big deal? If there's this loving God who wants to take us all into heaven or take some of us into heaven, Calvin would say, why do we have this big deal about Jesus? And that's what he says. In book two, he says the following. Well... When God made man, man was perfect. God made man with an ability to control his environment. They were to put in a garden and told to take care of the garden. They were able to walk humbly and obediently to God. They had understanding of what they needed to understand. Man was made not to die, but to live eternally in God's fellowship. When I say man, excuse me for being sexist, I mean humanity. Um, But man made a choice. Man also was given the ability to choose. And man chose, instead of walking with God, God goes right and man chose to go left. God says, we're going this way. We're not eating of that tree. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. Man says, "Uh, well, you go that way. I'm going over here. I think I'm going to disobey. That's what sin is. We call it sin. It means doing something God will not do. It means walking outside of his ethics and his morality. And when man chose to walk that way, the biblical example or biblical language is man became a slave to sin. Instead of being a slave or obedient or in fellowship with God, man becomes ensnarled or entrapped, or as J.B. Phillips translates it, it's a, a vicious cycle of sin. And that's what man gets into. And I call it a slave to sin because Paul did in the New Testament. And the way Calvin writes it, he says, man's slavery to sin affected his body and his soul. By body, he means this. 
It's the reason this doesn't work the way we would like it to. It's the reason that we have to struggle within our bodies to maintain health. It's the reason that we die. It's the reason that our bodies can be uh, uh, ensnared and entrapped and addicted to food or addicted to, to drink or addicted to all sorts of things. Pleasure. It's the reason sometimes our bodies dictate what we do instead of our minds and our hearts. Ever find yourself doing something physically that you don't any more think you ought to be doing than the man in the moon, but you're just doing it anyway. Paul talks about in Philippians people whose God is their appetite because that's what rules their lives. And guilty, mea culpa, right here, many times. You know, that's, that happens. That's what Calvin says. We've fallen in our body. But he says we've also fallen from what we were made, from the beauty of our perfected creation, the way God built us to be. We've fallen in our soul. By that he means our minds, our thinking is darkened. We don't think as clearly as we want. We're able to take black and white and turn them into every shade of gray there is. Heck, we can turn them into purple. I'm here to tell you, I'm a lawyer. I can rationalize almost anything. And willpower. Whew. Calvin says, that's no longer what it was meant to be either. Paul said it this way. The very thing I want to do, I can't do. Over and over and over, I find it. I want to do it, I just can't do it. And the very thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing it. So Calvin says, we are corrupted in this way. God didn't make us corrupt. God's not a bad creator. It wasn't a flawed design. It was a design of someone with free choice who chose the root of sin and slavery to sin. And so we're morally blinded. We don't know right from wrong. We're not just morally blinded. Calvin says this affects us in the way we perceive God too. For example, science. Science, according to Calvin, or mathematics, which he would include in science, or engineering. He says, these are tools, medicine, these are tools that God has given us to grapple better with the fallen condition of our world. We have architecture and engineering know-how so that we can build shelter to help us live better. We have medicinal know-how and God set up these rules of medicine so that we can combat some of the illness and, and fallenness of our bodies. God has put science out there at our disposal. It should be something that causes all of us to embrace science and praise God for it and use it for His purposes. But instead, we find ourselves caught in the test tube. And we use science to invalidate God. Because now all of a sudden we know more than huh, superstition. They thought God was behind the healing. It wasn't God. It was an antibiotic. Well, who set up the system the antibiotics work in? It's, Calvin says, you see God in this, but what mankind has done, while God made man his image, Calvin says man has spent a lifetime trying to remake God in our image. And we've totally turned the creation upside down. 
He says, so why do we have an Old Testament? Well, God sent the law. Why did he send the law? So that Charlton Heston could get in that good movie? <laughs> Moses. <laughs> Maybe. No. He sent the law for a number of reasons, Calvin says. But the main reason is to show us who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the only one who's going to keep that law perfectly. Jesus is the only one who's not only going to keep the letter of the law, but will keep the spirit of the law. It's one thing to say, don't commit adultery. It's a whole other thing to say, don't look at a person with lust. It's one thing to say, don't kill. It's a whole other thing to say, don't hate. Or better yet, love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor's your enemy. See, Jesus not only takes the letter of the law, He takes the spirit of the law. The law is there not only then to show us who Jesus is, not only then to help us understand His character, but also to drive us to our knees because we can't walk with God perfectly. There's not any of us that can. You take the very best human and he's filthily polluted before God. You can't take someone who is a 100% pure entity and you can take someone that's 99% pure, but they can't go with that 100% purity without that 100% changing. And God doesn't change. So God's got to do something with us because we are not there after the fall. So the law is sent for those reasons. Now he says there's more reasons. He says the law was also sent to control society. So Hickman's got some reason to arrest the people who are doing something wrong. See, you've you got to have law because otherwise society's going rampant. And he lays all of this stuff out in his institutes. But you see how he's building Christian basics here? He says this is how we're led to Christ. And then Christ becomes three things. He is the prophet, the ultimate prophet. When it says Messiah in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed. Do you know what the Greek word for Messiah is? Christ. Christos. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a reference to Jesus the anointed, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And he's anointed as a prophet. He's the supreme prophet. A prophet that perfectly takes the mind and, and heart of God and expresses it to humanity. Perfectly. Jesus is not only the anointed and perfect prophet, he's the perfect priest. It is Jesus who mediates between us and God. Calvin takes off against his Catholic heritage here and says, you're honoring or you're robbing Jesus of the honor as our mediator if you think you need to go to a saint to mediate between you and God. Because Jesus is the mediator and he gets that honor. He is the priest, the ultimate priest, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the way Scripture says it. Jesus is not only the anointed and perfect prophet, not only the anointed and perfect priest, but He's also the anointed and perfect king. Which means He's king over heaven and hell and everything. He's the king of all kings. There is nothing that's not under His control. No body, no person, no thing. No element, no idea, no thought. Everything is under His kingship and lordship. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords like there's never been and will never be. 
There is no one higher, no one greater, no one finer, no one more supreme. And there is no one that's not under his jurisdiction. Now, if that's who Jesus is, and God takes the form of humanity in Jesus, then we get to book three. How do we get into that? How do we receive Christ? And that's his book three. He says, not only how do we receive Christ, but he says, and and after we receive him, how do we live? What do we do? And and what is this prayer stuff anyway? What role does prayer play? And does God pick us or do we pick God? Because if none of us are good enough and he has to do all the work, then how are any of us good enough to pick him? He says, well, Scripture answers this, and he talks about it, but he lays it out in Calvinesque manner. He says, the way we, we get access to God, the way we access God is through Jesus, who lived this perfect life, and since we're only 99%, the best of us, actually, honestly, the best of us are about 30%, okay? Then there's a bunch more of us... About 20%. I'm living in negative numbers myself. I don't know about you. But the idea of us being 100% purity to be with God is impossible. But Jesus was, wasn't he? Jesus lives his entire life on earth. He's fully God. This is why God... Calvin says, Jesus has to be God. Because no man could live perfect. But he's also fully man. Or else his perfect life can't be imparted to us. But since he's fully God, he lives perfect, he's fully man, so he dies as a man, but he's resurrected and brought up a new creation that will live eternally with God. His eternity is with God. And so he's the first resurrected man who's going to spend eternity with God because of the quality of his life. Because he died perfectly. He never sinned. And so he lives eternally with God. Now there's kind of this little uh, mathematic thing that Calvin works out. He says, so what you got here is a chance. You can't be 99% and get with God, but you can be a human and get with the human Jesus. And what the human Jesus went through can be your experience. You can put on Christ like you put on clothes. And so that you're inside Jesus. And you do that, he says, by faith. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not just for grins, but for a purpose, so that the people who have faith in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. And so we put it on. Now, faith, Calvin says, faith is a deceptive thing. Some people think faith just means this understanding and historical perception that the gospel account really happened. Oh, I have faith. I believe that Jesus truly died and was buried and resurrected. He says, no, that's not biblical faith. That kind of faith does not save you. That kind of faith doesn't produce new life in you, the life where God works in you, where your works show that God's working in you. That is a naked, barren, mental ascent. But you're deceived if you think that's faith. The, the phrase that Calvin used that I really liked is he says, faith is an inward embracing of God that brings peace. It's, it's, a, it's an embracing. It's, a, it's inward. It's a, 
I accept, I, 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 I trust, I, I, I embrace this. It's the idea that, that not just the gospel account is true, but that God would reach down and save me, would pay a price for my sins. I embrace that God and I embrace what He's done in history and I lean on that and there we find our connection with Jesus. He says, and do you want to know how you have this faith? You want to know if you have it? One way to tell is it leads to repentance. Because when you have this inward embracing that this God has done this thing for you, then you look at your life and you look at your sins and you look at all your mistakes and you say, Oh God, I'm so sorry. He says, and repentance isn't something you do once because you sin all the time. And so it's something, as long as we're in our human bodies, we need to constantly be evaluating and repenting and confessing our sins. Not only does this inward embrace of God lead to repentance, but it leads to a loving righteousness where we try to do right. Oh, we may not try very hard because our willpower stinks and we're fallen, but the desire's there. Oh, it may not be full desire, but there's some... Because we not only love righteousness, but we love God. And we know that He is righteousness. He says, this is the transformation. And it's also a life of prayer. It leads to a life of prayer. And when we pray, we don't say, well, God, here I am, and I have a few things to talk to you about. First, I'll acknowledge you're good. Second, I'll acknowledge I'm a sinner. Now let's get on to the things I need. I have a list, and here they are. Thank you, God. I'll be expecting you any moment now. See you later. He says, no. When we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. And by that, Calvin explains. He says, God, I talk to you right now through Jesus Christ as my mediator. Through His purity and His goodness, I have the temerity but the audacity to approach you on your throne and speak to the Creator who hung all the stars in the sky. And yes, I am amazed that you know the number of hairs on my head and you know my name. But it's always a prayer through Jesus and it's a continual prayer. Now, this is where he says, is this man's choice or God's? Calvin says it's God's choice. God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And that's very harsh. And there are a lot of people even in Calvin's tradition that have said, time out, John, you missed the boat on that one. I will talk about this some more when we have some more time. Uh, uh, but uh, this Sunday I don't have enough time to put this into context with everything else. So maybe we'll cover Arminius or somebody. We'll talk about it then. I've put a little more info on it in the lesson, but uh, uh, I'm sorry. We don't have time this morning, and I don't want to do this halfway because it's not fair. Also, deals in book four with issues of church and structure. He set up the, the system where you have congregations that vote for their ministers. He set up a, a system where you have a, a, a deacon board that oversees the finances and the, the workings of the church. 
a Presbyterian system where the presbyters, the elders, oversee. And that's the Presbyterian church that comes from it, along with the Reformed church and others, as we talked about last week. Now, points for home. I would urge you to consider God. As Calvin said in book one, you won't really know who you are until you know God. Because when you know God and you see him for all he all you can see him for. You won't see him fully. But as you see him, as he's revealed himself to you, more and more it puts who you are into focus. I got to tell you, I'm listening to Fleming preach this morning. I'm loving the sermon. He's talking about the president's motorcade going down. I'm sitting there listening to it thinking, you know, what's it, what would it be like if I was a college kid and the president got out? I think that'd be a pretty cool thing. I can remember meeting presidents, and, and, and it's kind of a, an experience. But I'm sitting here thinking, compared to God, they're just like me. I mean, none of us have any reason to be uppity about who we are or where we are in life. None of us. None of us. None of us have any reason to ever look down our nose at anybody, regardless of what they look like, what they smell like, what they sound like, or what they've done in their life. I don't care what they've done in their life. We're no different in our need for God. Every man, to use Fleming's language this morning, every man can reach up as far as he wants to to God, and some of us can really reach high and really jump, but for every human, God still has to reach down all the way. And that's just the way it is. So consider God and let's stand amazed at his greatness and his love for us. There's not a human being in here. He not only knows your name, he knows how to pronounce it and spell it. And he may even know if you've got the wrong name. Because he, Jesus was quick to change someone's name if it wasn't the right one. Then let's live a life of love and faithfulness. Let's embrace him. That's the first step. If you don't understand the first step, come down here and talk to me. Come down and talk to Dale. Talk to Lewis. Talk to Joe. Talk to someone down here. Talk to Ray. Let someone talk to Jerry. Talk to somebody and let somebody explain to you what it means to inwardly embrace Christ because it changes your world. And then we live confident that death is not the end because Christ has been raised. And we shall too. Not because we're good enough, but because he was. And we live in him. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for loving us. And we do come to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Humbly on our knees, confessing ourselves as sinners. And asking you to forgive us of our sins. To We inwardly embrace you, God. And we ask you to be the Lord of our lives. Father, you reign over all creation. It is my prayer that we don't live in rebellion to you and your reign. But we see you for who you are. And love you. And follow you. Amen.